Abolition. Abolition. I was born a slave in Tuckahoe, near Hillsborough, and about 12 miles from Easton in Talbot County, Maryland. I have no accurate knowledge of my age. By far, the larger part of the slaves know as little of their ages as horses know of theirs. And it is the wish of most masters within my knowledge to keep their slaves thus ignorant. I do not remember to have ever met a slave who could tell his birthday. They seldom come nearer to it than planting time, harvest time, cherry time, spring time, or fall time. From various inquiries I have made, I have determined that I was born sometime in February in the year 1817. My mother was named Harriet Bailey, and she was a slave. She was of a very dark complexion. Of my father, I know nothing. Slavery has no recognition of fathers as none of families. That the mother is a slave is enough for its deadly purpose. By its laws, the child follows the condition of its mother. The father may be a freeman and the child a slave. I do not recollect ever seeing my mother by the light of day. She was with me in the night. She would lie down with me and get me to sleep. But long before I waked, she was gone. Once she walked 12 miles to see me and had the same distance to travel again before the morning sunrise. Death soon ended what little communication we had between us, and with it her hardships and suffering. She died when I was but seven years old on one of my master's farms. I was not allowed to be present during her illness at her death or her burial. She was gone long before I knew anything about it. I've had two masters. My first master's name was Anthony. I do not remember his first name. He was generally called Captain Anthony, a title which I presume he acquired by sailing a craft on the Chesapeake Bay. He owned two or three farms and about 30 slaves. Want of food was my chief trouble under Captain Anthony. I have often been so pinched with hunger as to dispute with old Nep, the dog, for the crumbs which fell from the kitchen table. Many times have I followed with eager step the waiting girl when she shook the tablecloth to get the crumbs and small bones flung out for the dogs and cats. It was a great thing to have the privilege of dipping a piece of bread into the water in which meat had been boiled. And the skin taken from the rusty bacon was a positive luxury. I suffered also much from cold. In hottest summer and coldest winter, I was kept almost naked. No shoes, no stockings, no jacket, no trousers. Nothing but a coarse toe linen shirt, reaching only to my knees. I had no bed. I must have perished with cold, but that the coldest nights I used to steal a bag which was used for carrying corn to the mill. I would crawl into this bag and there sleep on the cold, damp clay floor with my head in and feet out. My feet have been so cracked with the frost that a pin might be laid in the gashes. My master's farms and slaves were under the care of an overseer. The overseer's name was Plummer. Mr. Plummer was a miserable drunkard, a profane swearer, and a savage monster. He always went armed with a cowskin and a heavy cudgel. I have known him to cut and slash the women's heads so horribly that even Master would be enraged at his cruelty and would threaten to whip him if he did not mind himself. Master, however, was not a humane slaveholder. 
it required extraordinary barbarity on the part of an overseer to affect him. He was a cruel man, hardened by a long life of slaveholding. Slaves were expected to sing as well as to work. A silent slave was not liked, either by masters or overseers. Make a noise there, make a noise there, and bear a hand were words usually addressed to slaves when they were silent. The remark was often made that slaves were the most contented and happy laborers in the world, and their singing was referred to in proof of this alleged fact. But it was a great mistake to suppose them happy, because they sometimes made these joyful noises. The songs of the slaves represented their sorrows rather than joys. They told a tale of woe. They breathed the prayer and complaint of souls boiling over with bitterest anguish. Every tone was a testimony against slavery and a prayer, and to, prayer God to God for deliverance, deliverance from change. Underneath the hanging tree He looks just like me So tell me, am I really free? Could have been my mother Crying for my brother And everybody, everybody Everybody's praying for peace But who's gonna protect us from the police? Keep these chains off me Cause I don't wanna be another seat underneath the hanging tree That don't give a damn about you Am I just sometimes Am I just living to die
Abolition. I was probably between seven and eight years old when I left Captain Anthony to live in Baltimore with Mr. Hugh Auld, my second master. Mrs. Auld was a woman of the kindest heart and finest feeling, but slavery soon proved its ability to divest her of these excellent qualities. Very soon after I went to live with Mr. and Mrs. Auld, she very kindly commenced to teach me the ABC. After I learned these, she assisted me in learning to spell words of three or four letters. Just at this point of my progress, Mr. Orr found out what was going on and at once forbade Mrs. Orr to instruct me further, telling her, among other things, that it was unlawful as well as unsafe to teach a slave to read. It will forever unfit him to be a slave, he said. He will at once become unmanageable and of no value to his master. These words sank deep into my heart. From that moment, I understood the pathway from slavery to freedom. Though conscious of the difficulty of learning without a teacher, I set out with high hope and a fixed purpose at whatever cost of trouble to learn how to read. But now, my former teacher became my greatest enemy. She became even more violent in her opposition to my learning to read than her husband himself. She was not satisfied with simply halting my lessons as her husband had commanded. Nothing seemed to make her more angry than to see me with a newspaper. I have had her rush at me with a face made up all of fury and snatch from me a newspaper in a manner that fully revealed her apprehension. The plan which I adopted was that of making friends of the little white boys I met in the street. As many of these as I could, I converted into teachers. With their kindly aid, obtained at different times and in different places, I finally succeeded in learning to read. When I was sent on errands, I always took my book with me, and by going one part of my errands quickly, I found time to get a lesson before my return. I was now about 12 years old, and the thought of being a slave for life began to bear heavily upon my heart. I resolved to run away. I looked forward to a time when it would be safe for me to escape. I was too young to think of doing so immediately. Besides, I wished to learn how to write, as I might have occasion to write my own pass. I consoled myself that I should one day find a good chance. Meanwhile, I would learn to write. The ideas as to how I might learn to write was suggested to me by being in Durgan and Bailey's shipyard and frequently seeing the ship's carpenter, after hewing and getting a piece of timber ready for use, write on the timber the name of that part of the ship for which it was intended. When a piece of timber was intended for the larboard side, it would be marked thus, L. When a piece was for the starboard side, it would be marked thus, S. A piece for the larboard side forward would be marked thus, L, F. When a piece was for the starboard side forward, it would be marked thus, L, A. For starboard aft, it would be marked thus, S, A. I soon learned the names of these letters and for what they were intended when placed upon a piece of timber in the shipyard. I immediately began copying them and in a short time was able to make the four letters named. After that, when I met with any boy who I knew could write, I would tell him I could write as well as he. The next word would be, I don't believe you. Let me see you try it. I would then make the letters which I had been so fortunate as to learn and ask him to beat that. In this way, I got a good many lessons in writing, which is quite possible I should never have gotten in any other way. 
During this time, my copybook was the board fence, brick wall, and pavement. My pen and ink was a lump of chalk. With these, I learned mainly how to write. I then began and continued copying the letters in Webster's spelling book until I could make them all out without looking at the book. Thus, after a long, tedious effort for years, I finally succeeded in learning how to write, how to write, how to write, how to write, how to write. Southern leaves, southern trees we hung from, barren souls, heroic songs unsung. Forgive them, Father, they know this not as undone. Tied with the rope that my grandmother died. Pride of the pilgrims affect lives of millions. Since slave days separating fathers from children. Institution ain't just a building. But a method of having black and brown bodies fill them We ain't seen as human beings with feelings Will the U.S. ever be us, Lord willing? For now we know the new Jim Crow To stop, search, and arrest our souls Police and policies control Philosophies of control A cruel hand take it hold We let go to free them so we can free us America's moment to come to Jesus Sings for freedom to ring Black bodies being lost in the American dream Blood of black being A pastoral scene Slavery still alive Check Amendment 13 Not whips and chains Our subliminal Instead of nigger They use the word criminal Sweet land of liberty Incarcerated country Shot me with your ray gun And now you wanna trump me Prison is the business America's the company Investing in the justice Fear and long suffering we staring in the face of hate again The same hate they say will make America great again No consolation prize for the dehumanized For America to rise is a matter of black lives And we gon' free them so we can free us America's moment to come to Jesus
In March 1832, I left Baltimore to live with Thomas Ald, a brother of my master, Hugh Ald. My new master and I had quite a number of differences. He found me unsuitable to his purpose. My city life in Baltimore, he said, had had a very pernicious effect upon me. It had almost ruined me, he claimed, for use as a slave. During the first nine months I lived with him, he gave me a number of severe whippings to break my spirit, all to no good purpose. Finally, he resolved to put me out, as he said, to be broken. And for this purpose, he hired me for one year to a man named Edward Covey, who enjoyed the reputation of being a first-rate hand at breaking young Negroes. Some slaveholders thought it an advantage to allow Mr. Covey to have their slaves for one year or two almost free of charge for the sake of the excellent training they had under his management. I left Master Thomas's house and went to live with Mr. Covey on the 1st of January, 1833. I was now, for the first time in my life, a field hand. I had been at my new home but one week before Mr. Covey gave me a very severe whipping, cutting my back causing the blood to run, and raising ridges on my flesh as large as my little finger. I lived with Mr. Covey one year. During the first six months of that year, scarce a week passed without his whipping me. I was seldom free from a sore back. If at any one time of my life more than another, I was made to drink the bitterest dregs of slavery, that time was during the first six months of my stay with Mr. Covey. Then, suddenly, my situation changed. How did this happen? One morning, long before daylight, I was called to go and rub, curry, and feed the horses. I obeyed and was glad to obey. But while thus engaged, while in the act of throwing down some blades from the loft, Mr. Covey entered the stable with a long rope. And just as I was half out of the loft, he caught hold of my legs and was about to tie me. As soon as I found what he was up to, a sudden determination to resist seized me. I gave a quick spring, and as I did so, he holding to my legs, I was brought sprawling on the stable floor. Mr. Covey seemed now to think he had me and could do what he pleased, but at this moment, from whence came the spirit I don't know, I resolved to fight, and suiting my action to the resolution, I seized Covey hard by the throat, and as I did so, I rose. He held on to me, and I to him. We were at it for nearly two hours. Covey at length let me go, puffing and blowing at a great rate, saying that if I had not resisted, he would not have whipped me half so much. The truth was that he had not whipped me at all. I considered him as getting entirely the worst end of the bargain, for he had drawn no blood from me, but I had from him. The whole six months afterwards that I spent with Mr. Covey, he never laid the weight of his finger upon me in anger. He would occasionally say he didn't want to get hold of me again. No, thought I, you need not, for you will come off worse than you did before. This battle with Mr. Covey 
was the turning point in my career as a slave. It rekindled the few expiring embers of freedom and revived within me a sense of my own manhood. It recalled the departed self-confidence and inspired me again with the determination to be free. The gratification afforded by the triumph was a full compensation for whatever else might follow, even death itself. He only can understand the deep satisfaction I experienced who has himself repelled by force the bloody arm of slavery. I felt as I never felt before. It was a glorious resurrection from the tomb of slavery to the heaven of freedom. My long-crushed spirit rose, cowardice departed, bold defiance took its place, and I now resolved that however long I might remain a slave in form, the day had passed forever when I could be a slave and fat. I did not hesitate to let it be known of me that the white man who expected to succeed in whipping must also succeed in killing me. From this time, I was never again what might be called fairly whipped, though I remained a slave four years afterwards. I had several fights, had several fights but was never, was never whipped. It's not the light we need, but fire, fire. Not the gentle shower, but thunder, thunder. We need the storm. We need the trouble. We need the whirlwind, the earth to rumble. Without a struggle, there can be no progress. But where the whip is swinging, ceaseless, ceaseless.
As I became more difficult to manage as a slave, it was decided to send me back to my old home in Baltimore. It was from this city in the year 1838 that I escaped from slavery. In the early part of that year, I became quite restless. My master had hired me out as a ship corker for which work I was paid wages, which I had to turn over to my master. I could see no reason why I should, at the end of each week, pour the reward of my toil into the purse of my master. When I carried to him my weekly wage, he would, after counting the money, look me in the face with a robber-like fierceness and ask, Is that all? He was satisfied with nothing less than the last cent. He would, however, when I made him six dollars, sometimes give me six cents to encourage me. It had the opposite effect. I regarded it as a sort of admission of my right to the whole. The fact that he gave me any part of my wages was proof to my mind that he believed me entitled to the whole of them. I always felt worse for having received anything, for I feared that the giving me a few cents would ease his conscience and make him feel himself to be a pretty honorable sort of robber. My discontent grew upon me. I was ever on the lookout for means of escape from slavery. Two thoughts kept me from acting immediately to carry out my resolution. One was the thought of leaving my friends, fellow slaves, and free Negroes whom I knew. This was decidedly the most painful thought with which I had to contend. The love of them was my tender point and shook my decision more than all things else. Besides the pain of separation, there was the dread and apprehension of failure. I felt sure that if I failed in the attempt, my case would be a hopeless one. It would seal my fate as a slave forever. I could not hope to get off with anything less than the severest punishment and being placed beyond the means of escape. It required no very vivid imagination to depict the most frightful scenes through which I should have to pass in case I failed. But the wretchedness of slavery and the blessedness of freedom were perpetually before me. It was life and death with me. Therefore, I remained firm, and according to my resolution, on the third day of September, 1838, I left my chains. For many years after I escaped from slavery, I refrained from revealing to the public the manner of my escape. There were two reasons why I did so. First, to reveal this at any time during the existence of slavery, might be used by the master against the slave and prevent the future escape of any who might adopt the same means that I did. The second reason was, if possible, still more binding to silence, for publication of details would certainly have put in peril the persons and property of those who assisted. Murder itself was not more sternly and certainly punished in the state of Maryland than was the aiding and abetting the escape of a slave. My means of escape were provided for me by the very men who were making laws to hold and bind me more securely in slavery. It was the custom in the state of Maryland to require of the free Negro people to have what were called free papers. In these papers, the name, age, color, height, and form of the free men were described, together with any scars or other marks upon his person which could assist in his identification. This device of slave-holding ingenuity, like other devices of wickedness, in some measure defeated itself, since more than one man could be found to answer the same general description.
Hence, many slaves could escape by personating the owner of one set of papers. And this was often done as follows. A slave, nearly or sufficiently answering the description set forth in the papers, would borrow them till he could by their means escape to a free state, and then, by mail or otherwise, return them to the owner. I was not so fortunate as to sufficiently resemble any of my free acquaintances as to answer the description of their papers. But I had one friend, a sailor, who owned a sailor's protection, which answered somewhat the purpose of free papers, describing his person and certifying to the fact that he was a free American sailor. Unfortunately, this protection called for a man much darker than myself, and close examination of it would have caused my arrest. But I decided to use it, for I considered the jostle of the train and the natural haste of the conductor in a train crowded with passengers, and relied upon my skill and address in playing the sailor as described in my protection to do the rest. I had on a red shirt and a tarpaulin hat and black cravat, tied in sailor fashion, carelessly and loosely about my neck. My knowledge of ships and sailors' talk came to my assistance, for I knew a ship from stem to stern and could talk sailor like an old salt. I was well on the way from Baltimore before the conductor came into the Negro car to collect fares and examine the papers of his black passengers. This was a critical moment. My whole future depended upon the decision of this conductor. I suppose you have your free papers? The conductor asked me. No, sir. I never carry my free papers to sea with me. I replied in a calm and self-possessed manner. But you have something to show that you are a free man, have you not? Yes, sir, I answered. I have a paper with the American Eagle on it that will carry me around the world. With this, I drew from my deep sailor's pocket my seaman's protection as before described. The merest glance at the paper satisfied him, and he took my fare and went about his business. After that, no one disturbed me, and I was soon speeding away to the Quaker city of Philadelphia. On reaching Philadelphia in the afternoon, I inquired of a colored man how I could get to New York. He directed me to the depot, and thither I went, taking the train that night. I reached New York the next morning, having completed the journey from slavery to freedom in less than 24 hours. On the fourth day of September, 1838, after an anxious and most perilous but safe journey, I found myself in the big city of New York, a free man. I, I felt a joyous excitement which words can but tamely describe. I wish I knew how it would feel to be free. I wish I could break all the chains holding me. I could say all the things that I should say Say I'm loud, say I'm clear For the whole round world to hear I wish I could share all the love that's in my heart Remove all the bars that keep us apart Man.
abolition, abolition today. But this gladness was short-lived. For I was not yet out of the reach of the power of the slaveholders. Thank heaven, I remained but a short time in this distressed situation. A sailor, warm-hearted and generous fellow, saw me standing on the opposite sidewalk, wondering what next to do. As he approached me, I ventured a remark to him, which at once enlisted his interest in me. He took me to his home to spend the night, and in the morning went with me to Mr. David Ruggles, the Negro secretary of the New York Vigilance Committee, an organization of free Negroes and white abolitionists which assisted fugitive slaves. I was hidden with Mr. Ruggles several days, during which Anna, my intended wife, came on from Baltimore on my call to share the burdens of life with me. She was a free woman of color and came at once on getting the good news of my safety. We were married, after which we left for New Bedford, Massachusetts, where Mr. Ruggles thought I could find work at my trade as a corker. Upon reaching New Bedford, we were directed to the house of Mr. and Mrs. Nathan Johnson, by whom we were kindly received. On the morning after our arrival, the question arose as to what name I should be called by. The name given me by my mother was Frederick Augustus Washington Bailey. I, however, had dispensed with the two middle names long before I left Maryland, so that I was generally known by the name of Frederick Bailey. When I left Baltimore, I changed my name to Stanley, and then on reaching New York, to Johnson. But there were so many Johnsons in New Bedford that it was thought advisable for me to have a different name. I gave Mr. Johnson the privilege of choosing me a name, but told him that he must not take from me the name of Frederick. I must hold on to that to preserve my sense of identity. Mr. Johnson had just been reading Walter Scott's Lady of the Lake and at once suggested that my name be Douglas after the great character in that poem. From that time on, I was called Frederick Douglass. I found employment the third day after my arrival and stowing a sloop with a load of oil. It was new, dirty, and hard work for me, but I went at it with a glad heart and a willing hand. It was a happy moment, the rapture of which can be understood only by those who have been slaves. It was the first work, the reward of which was to be entirely my own. There was no master standing ready the moment I earned the money to rob me of it. I worked that day with a pleasure I had never before experienced. I was at work for myself and a newly married wife. It was to me the starting point of a new existence. I had been living four or five months in New Bedford when there came a young man to me with a copy of The Liberator, the paper edited by William Lloyd Garrison, and asked me to subscribe to it. I told him I had just escaped from slavery and, and was, of course, very poor and had no money then to pay for it. He was very willing to take me as a subscriber notwithstanding, and I read the paper from week to week. It soon took a place in my heart, second only to the Bible. It detested slavery and made no truce with traffickers in the bodies and souls of men. It preached human brotherhood. It denounced oppression and with all the solemnity of thus saith the Lord, demanded the complete emancipation of my race. The paper became my meat and my drink. My soul was set on fire. Its sympathy for my brethren in bonds, its scathing denunciations of slaveholders, and its powerful attacks upon the upholders of the institution sent a thrill of joy through my soul, such as I had never felt before. 
about the destruction of all the evil that will have to All the anti-slavery meetings held in New Bedford, I promptly attended, 
my heart bounding at every true utterance against the slave system and every rebuke of its friends and supporters. In the summer of 1841, a grand anti-slavery convention was held in Nantucket under the auspices of Mr. Garrison and his friends. I determined on attending the meeting, though I had no thought of taking any part in any of its proceedings. But once there, I felt strongly moved to speak, and though I trembled in every limb, I spoke a few moments, describing my life as a slave. At the close of this great meeting, I was approached by Mr. John A. Collins, then the general agent of the Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society, and urged to become an agent of that society and publicly advocate its principles. I was reluctant to accept the position. I had not been quite three years from slavery and was honestly distrustful of my ability. Besides, publicity might discover me to my master. But Mr. Collins was not to be refused, and I finally consented to go out for three months. I traveled in the company of white abolitionists and lectured to large meetings. Many came, uh, no doubt from curiosity, to hear what a Negro could say in his own cause. I was generally introduced as a chattel, a thing, a piece of Southern property, the chairman assuring the audience that it could speak. As a fugitive slave lecturer, I faced many hostilities. My treatment in the use of public conveyances was extremely rough. On the railroads, there was a mean, dirty, and uncomfortable car set apart for Negro travelers called the Jim Crow car. Regarding this as the fruit of slaveholding prejudice and being determined to fight the spirit of slavery wherever I might find it, I resolved to avoid this car, though it sometimes required some courage to do so. I sometimes was soundly beaten by conductors and brakemen. At several of our meetings, my fellow abolitionists and I were mobbed, and several of us had our good clothes spoiled by evil-smelling eggs. On one occasion, we had barely begun to speak when a mob of about 60 of the roughest characters I had ever looked upon ordered us through its leader to be silent, threatening us if we were not with violence. We attempted to dissuade them, but they had not come to parley, but to fight, and were well armed. They tore down the platform on which we stood and assaulted us. Undertaking to fight my way through the crowd with a stick which I caught up in the melee, I attracted the fury of the mob which laid me prostrate on the ground under a torrent of blows, leaving me thus with my right hand broken and in a state of unconsciousness, the mobocrats hastily mounted their horses and rode off. I was soon raised up and nursed and bandaged, but as the bones broken were not properly set, my hand has never recovered its natural strength and dexterity. During the first three or four months of my work as an anti-slavery agent, my speeches were almost exclusively made up of narrations of my own personal experience as a slave. Let us have the facts, said the people. But I was now reading and thinking. New views of the subject were being presented to my mind. It did not entirely satisfy me to narrate wrongs. I felt like denouncing them. I could not always curb my moral indignation for the perpetrators of slave-holding villainy long enough for a circumstantial statement of the facts, which I felt almost sure everybody know. People won't believe you ever were a slave, Frederick, if you keep on this way, my friends told me. It is not best that you seem too learned. These friends were not altogether wrong in their advice. And still I must speak just the word that seemed to me to be the word to be spoken by me. 
At last, the apprehended trouble came. People doubted if I had ever been a slave. They said I did not talk like a slave, look like a slave, or act like a slave, and that they believed I had never been south of Mason and Dixon's line. I decided to write out the leading facts connected with my experience in slavery, giving names of persons, places, and dates, thus putting it in the power of any who doubted to ascertain the truth or falsehood of my story. This book, entitled Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, an American Slave, was published in Boston in 1845. William Lloyd Garrison wrote the preface to my book. My book soon became known in Maryland, and I had reason to believe that an effort would be made to recapture me. I was persuaded by my friends to leave the country and was sent as an agent to Great Britain. The object of my labors in Great Britain was the concentration of the moral and religious sentiment of its people against American slavery. To this end, I visited and lectured in nearly all the large towns and cities of the United Kingdom and enjoyed many favorable opportunities for observation and information. Some notion may be formed of the difference in my feelings and circumstances while abroad from a letter I wrote to Mr. Garrison on January 1st, 1846. I live a new life. The warm and generous cooperation extended me by the friends of my despised race, the prompt and liberal manners with which the press has rendered me its aid, the glorious enthusiasm with which thousands have flocked to hear the cruel wrongs of my downtrodden and long enslaved fellow countrymen portrayed, the deep sympathy for the slave and the strong abhorrence of the slaveholders everywhere evinced the cordiality with which members and ministers of various religious bodies and of various shades of religious opinion have embraced me and lent me their aid, the kind hospitality constantly proffered me by persons of the highest rank in society, the spirit of freedom that seems to animate all with whom I come in contact, and the entire absence of everything that looks like prejudice against me on account of the color of my skin, contrast so strongly with my long and bitter experience in the United States that I look with wonder and amazement on the transition. The higher you build your barriers The taller I become The farther you take my rights away The faster I will run
in England I owe my freedom in the United States. They learned through correspondence that Captain Auld, my master, would take 150 pounds sterling for me, and this sum they promptly raised and paid for my liberation, placing the papers of my manumission into my hands before they would tolerate the idea of my return to my native land. To this commercial transaction, to this blood money, I owe my immunity from the operation of the Fugitive Slave Law. Having remained abroad for nearly two years and being about to return to America, not as I left it, a slave, but a free man, prominent friends of the cause of emancipation in England offered to make me a testimonial, both on the grounds of personal regard to me and also to the cause to which they were so ardently devoted. I suggested that my friends should simply give me the means of obtaining a printing press and materials to enable me to start a paper advocating the interest of my enslaved and oppressed people. I told them that perhaps the greatest hindrance to the adoption of abolition principles by the people of the United States was the low estimate everywhere in that country placed upon the Negro as a man, that because of his assumed natural inferiority, 
people reconciled themselves to his enslavement and oppression as being inevitable, if not desirable. The grand thing to be done, therefore, was to change this estimation by disproving his inferiority and demonstrating his capacity for a more exalted civilization than slavery and prejudice had assigned him. In my judgment, a newspaper in the hands of persons of the despised race would, by calling out and making them acquainted with their own latent powers, by enkindling their hope of a future and developing their moral force, prove a most powerful means of removing prejudice and awaking an interest in them. These views I laid before my friends. The result was that nearly $2,500 was speedily raised toward my establishing such a paper as I had indicated. On December 3rd, 1847, I launched my own newspaper, The North Star, in Rochester, New York. I chose this name because a slave followed the North Star when he escaped north to freedom. On the masthead, I inscribed as the paper's motto the words, Right is of no sex, truth is of no color, God is the father of us all, and we are all brethren. In a message to my oppressed countrymen, I wrote, We solemnly dedicate the North Star to the cause of our long oppressed and plundered fellow countrymen. May God bless the undertaking to your good. It shall fearlessly assert your rights, faithfully proclaim your wrongs, and earnestly demand for you instant and even-handed justice. Giving no quarter to slavery in the South, it will hold no truce with oppressors in the North, while it shall boldly advocate emancipation for our enslaved brethren, it shall omit no opportunity to gain for the nominally free, complete enfranchisement. Every effort to injure or degrade you or your cause, originating wheresoever or with whomsoever, shall find in it a constant, unswerving, and inflexible foe. Remember that we are one, that our cause is one, and that we must help each other if we would succeed. We have drunk to the dregs the bitter cup of slavery. We have worn the heavy yoke. We have sighed beneath our bonds and writhed beneath the bloody lash. Cruel mementos of our oneness are indelibly marked on our living flesh. We are one with you under the ban of prejudice and proscription, one with you under the slander of inferiority, one with you in social and political disfranchisement. What you suffer, we suffer. What you endure, we endure. We are indissolubly united and must fall or flourish together. I had resolved that whatever power I had should be devoted to the freeing of my people from slavery, and that once free, they should enjoy all the rights, privileges, and immunities enjoyed by any other members of American society. To the achievement of these goals, I dedicated the rest of my life. 
In December 1847, I began the publication of the North Star in Rochester, New York. There were many times when in my experience as editor and publisher, I was very hard-pressed for money. But by one means or another, I succeeded to keep my anti-slavery banner steadily flying during all the conflict from the autumn of 1847 till May 1863, when the Union of the States was assured 
and emancipation of the slaves was an accomplished fact. Editing and publishing a weekly paper with its nights and days of toil and thought, compelled often to do work for which I had no educational preparation, was a difficult project. But I've come to think that, under the circumstances, it was the best school possible for me. It obliged me to think and read. It taught me to express my thoughts clearly and was perhaps better than any other course I could have adopted. Besides, it made it necessary to lean upon myself and not upon the heads of our anti-slavery church to be a principal and not an agent. I had an audience to speak to every week and must say something worth hearing or cease to speak altogether. There is nothing like the lash and sting of necessity to make a man work, and my paper furnished the motive power. If I have at any time said or written that which is worth remembering or repeating, I must have said such things between the year 1848 and 1860, and my paper was a chronicle of most of what I said during that time. However, I found it hard to get credit in some quarters either for what I wrote or what I said. While there was nothing very profound or learned in either, the low estimate of Negro possibilities induced the belief that both my editorials and speeches were written by white persons. I doubt if this skepticism does not still linger in the minds of some of my democratic fellow citizens. My pathway was not entirely free from thorns in Rochester. The vulgar prejudice against color, so common to Americans, met me in several disagreeable forms. My children were not allowed in the public school in the district in which I lived, owned property, and paid taxes, but were compelled, if they went to a public school, to go over to the other side of the city to an inferior colored school. I hardly need say that I was not prepared to submit tamely to this proscription any more than I had been to submit to slavery. So I had them taught at home for a while. Meanwhile, I went to the people with the question and created considerable agitation. I sought and obtained a hearing before the Board of Education, and after repeated efforts with voice and pen, the doors of the public schools were opened and colored children were permitted to attend them in common with others. There were barriers erected against colored people in most other places of instruction and amusement in the city, and until I went there they were imposed without any apparent sense of injustice or wrong, and submitted to in silence. But one by one they have gradually been removed, and colored people were allowed to enter freely all places of public resort without hindrance or observation. This change has not been wholly effected by me. From the first I was cheered on and supported in my demands for equal rights by a number of white and Negro men and women of Rochester. One important branch of my anti-slavery work in Rochester, in addition to speaking and writing against slavery, must not be omitted. My position gave me the chance of hitting the old enemy some telling blows in another direction than these. You can have all the money in your hands All the possessions anyone can ever have but it's our worth, it's treasure, true worth is only measure. Not by what you got, but what you got in your heart. You can have, you can have everything. What is it, what is it? 
can do, then you can look in the mirror, proud of who's looking back at you. Define the life you're living, not by what you take, but what you're giving. And if you bet on love, there's no way you'll ever lose. Take a stand, make a stand for what's right. It's always worth, always worth the fight. It all means nothing. And if you don't stand up for something, you can't just talk the talk. You got to walk that walk. I was on the southern border of Lake Ontario, and Canada was right over the way. And my prominence as an abolitionist and as the editor of an anti-slavery paper naturally made me the station master and conductor of the Underground Railroad passing through the city. Secrecy and concealment were necessary conditions to the successful operation of this railroad, and hence its prefix, underground. My agency was all the more exciting and interesting because not altogether free from danger. I could take no step in it without exposing myself to fine and imprisonment, for these were the penalties imposed by the Fugitive Slave Law for feeding, harboring, or otherwise assisting a slave to escape from his master. But in face of this fact, I can say, I never did more congenial, attractive, fascinating, and satisfactory work. True, as a means of destroying slavery, it was like an attempt to bail out the ocean with a teaspoon. But the thought that there was one less slave, and a fugitive slave, brought to my heart unspeakable joy. On one occasion, I had eleven fugitives at the same time under my roof and it was necessary for them to remain with me until I could collect sufficient money to get them on to Canada. So numerous were the fugitives passing through Rochester that I was obliged at last 
to appeal to my British friends for the means of sending them on their way, and when these good people took the matter in hand, I had never any further trouble in that respect. The assistance to fugitive slaves escaping from the South was only part of my work in the Underground Railroad, for the vicious fugitive slave law of 1850 endangered the security of Negroes who had escaped to the North. Fugitive slaves, who had lived for many years safely and securely in western New York and elsewhere, some of whom had by industry and economy saved money and brought little homes for themselves and their children, were suddenly alarmed and compelled to flee to Canada for safety so as not to be returned to slavery, and to take up a dismal march to a new abode empty-handed among strangers. The hardships imposed by this atrocious and shameful law were cruel and shocking, and yet only a few of all the fugitives of the northern states were returned to slavery under its infamously wicked provisions. The thing which, more than all else, destroyed the fugitive slave law was the resistance made to it by the fugitives themselves. A decided check was given to the execution of the law at Christiana, Pennsylvania, where three colored men, being pursued by Mr. Gorsuch and his son, slew the father, wounded the son, drove away the officers, and made their escape to my house in Rochester. The work of getting these men safely into Canada was a delicate one. They were not only fugitives from slavery, but charged with murder, and officers were in pursuit of them. There was no time for delay. I could not look upon them as murderers. To me, they were heroic defenders of the just rights of man against man-stealers and murderers. So I fed them and sheltered them in my house. This affair at Christiana and the Jerry rescue at Syracuse inflicted fatal wounds on the Fugitive Slave Bill. It became thereafter almost a dead letter, for slaveholders found that not only did it fail to put them in possession of their slaves, but that the attempt to enforce it brought odium upon themselves and weakened the slave system. If the city does try to come in here and get you out, what are you going to do? We're going to do what's necessary, man. What is that? But first, understand why he's coming in here. What are you going to do? All right. We're going to do what's necessary. What is that? The strategy of John Africa. What is that? Our only defense. What is that? The strategy of John Africa. You aren't telling me anything. You're just saying the strategy of John Africa. I wouldn't tell my strategy to you. Where I'm from, you a jack boy, you're a trafficker. Probably end up locked up in Attica. Could they consider people like me radical? They say I'm an animal, the Hannibal. Lecter, cause I get them people lecture. Yes, sir, I'm a threat, sir. Give me liberty, give me death, sir. Just me and my mind's bird. You can see the pain in my eyes and they bloodshot red cause I'm hot. No good. They 
ocean will be televised. Blowing chocolate tie in the vanilla skies. The bill of rice is just a bill of lies. Know your rights is only right, you gotta stand your ground. System of corruption, I would never trust it. Motherfucking consequences has its repercussions. I'm disgusted, no justice, when will it ever change? Feeling drained, want the world to feel a nigga pain. Uh, we getting ready, boy, we dressing up Studying strategies and methods, boy, I'm stepping up Curiosity kills, they want to question us I'm on the move, long live John Africa Strategies of John Africa Strategies of John Africa Strategies of John Africa Hey, I wouldn't tell my strategies of you Strategies of John Africa I'm just trying to spread the news that the system's all wrong and it's designed for us to lose. Designed to keep confused. Designed to keep amused. Designed to hide the proof because it's designed to hide the truth. They manipulate your views and they dumbing down the schools. They keep passing all these laws but never tell you all the rules. They got the people fooled. They don't even got a clue. You know nothing about them but they know everything about you. See, everything's not true. Better watch what you believe. Better stop believing everything you watch on the TV If this the land of the free Contradictions all I see When half of the population's in the penitentiary See, now they teaching sex in elementary Keep it real, you think that shit is a necessity? Is you gon' ride, is you gon' side with the enemy? Keep the move alive, John Africa Rest in peace Strategies of John Africa Strategies of John Africa Strategies of John Africa. Hey, I wouldn't tell my strategies of you. Strategies of John Africa. Strategies of John Africa. Strategies of John Africa. Hey, I wouldn't tell my strategies of you. Abolition. 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 When I established my paper in Rochester, I was a faithful disciple of William Lloyd Garrison and fully committed to his doctrine touching the pro-slavery character of the Constitution of the United States, also the non-voting principle, of which he was the known and distinguished advocate. With him, I held it to be the first duty of the non-slaveholding states to dissolve the union with the slaveholding states, and hence my cry, like his, was, no union with slaveholders. With these views, I came into western New York, and during my first four years of labor there, I advocated them with pen and tongue to the best of my ability. After a time, a careful reconsideration of the subject convinced me that there was no necessity for dissolving the union between the northern and southern states, that to seek this dissolution was no part of my duty as an abolitionist, that to abstain from voting 
was to refuse to exercise the legitimate and powerful means for abolishing slavery, and that the Constitution of the United States not only contained no guarantees in favor of slavery, but on the contrary, was in its letter and spirit an anti-slavery instrument, demanding the abolition of slavery as a condition of its own existence as the supreme law of the land. By a course of thought and reading, I was conducted to the conclusion that the Constitution of the United States inaugurated to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty, could not well have been designed at the same time to maintain and perpetuate a system of slavery, especially as not one word can be found in the Constitution to authorize such a belief. Then again, if the declared purposes of an instrument are to govern the meaning of all its parts and details, as they clearly should, the Constitution of our country is our warrant for the abolition of slavery in every state in the Union. It would require much time to set the arguments which demonstrated to my mind the unconstitutionality of slavery. But being convinced of the fact, my duty was plain upon this point in the further conduct of my paper. As I became convinced that it was necessary to use all weapons in the struggle against slavery, including political action and voting, I became increasingly interested in the political movement being organized against the slave power. In 1848, it was my privilege to attend and in some measure to participate in the famous Free Soil Convention held in Buffalo, New York. It was a vast and variegated assemblage composed of persons from all sections of the North and may be said to have formed a new departure in the history of forces organized to resist the growing and aggressive demands of slavery and the slave power. Until this Buffalo Convention, anti-slavery agencies had been mainly directed to the work of changing public sentiment by exposing through the press and on the platform the nature of the slave system. Anti-slavery thus far had only been sheet lightning. The Buffalo Convention sought to make it a thunderbolt. This Buffalo Convention of Free Soilers did not come out against the system of slavery as it existed in the South, confining itself to opposing the further extension of slavery under the slogans free soil, free labor, free states, free speech, and free men. But however low was the standard of the free soilers at Buffalo, they did lay the foundation of a grand superstructure. It was a powerful link in the chain of events by which the slave system has been abolished, the slave emancipated, and the country saved from dismemberment. In all this and more, it illustrates the experience of reform in all ages and conforms to the laws of human progress. Measures change. Principles never.
It's that rotten cotton music, not that bottle popping music. It's that breaking free slavery was not an option. Music, not that Dr. Seuss's opportunist kindergarten music. It's that 90s clue mix, cool mix of Malcolm Pock and Lewis. This new rhyme be that ramen noodles, minimum wage living. 21 to drink, but jail don't come with an age limit. Couldn't afford college, you could have got an A in it. Instead, you want a jail bed, wishing you got away with it. Talk your way out of situations, words you got away with it. Not when they found the pounds of scale, you got away with it. It's just a thing you got stopped for an unpaid ticket. Two years up top and not one paid visit. Still won't complain, this is a snapshot of the streets. Cops leave brothers with their backshot in the streets. Red blood on black top and white sheets. More than deceased. Hennessy on concrete as we throw back shots in the streets. It's that rotten cotton music out the rotten apple. It's that rotten cotton feel. Rotten cotton feel. It's that rotten cotton music out the rotten apple. It's that rotten cotton feel. Rotten cotton feel. It's that rotten cotton music out the rotten apple. It's that rotten cotton feel. Rotten cotton feel. It's that rotten cotton music out the rotten apple. It's that rotten cotton feel. Rotten cotton feel. It's that rotten cotton music. No Democrat or Republican. More than busting windows out. No Jasmine Sullivan. It's that machete with sharp double edges, ready to start trouble. Up with a death wish. Up with breakfast like working a double. Studying the slave masters, ways and rituals. Can't lick your goals, even to those who say they liberals. Plotting to overthrow, gotta stay low, can't speak subliminals. We ain't get no heads up when it came to steal the minerals. As men, women, children suffer. Wouldn't kill us, made us tougher. So we up after supper, coming after the infrastructure that kept us under, kept the culture held hostage. So, like hostages held by a bounty hunter, we kept the hunger. Jail number, green jumper, or number 23 jumper. No more pink cotton we ride and bump with a push that rotten cotton music out the rotten apple it's that rotten cotton feel rotten cotton feel it's that rotten cotton music out the rotten apple it's that rotten cotton feel rotten cotton feel it's that rotten cotton music out the rotten apple it's that rotten cotton feel rotten cotton feel it's that rotten cotton music out the rotten apple it's that rotten cotton feel rotten cotton It's that rotten cotton music. I can smell the smoke aroma. Black Wall Street burned down in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Broken homes to Oakland, Homer. The Black Panthers, that same smoke aroma gave blacks cancer. Black Wall Street gave blacks hope. Felt like our last chance to be more than a singer, an actor, a black dancer. Black Panther began re-inspiring us. Then they shot a black man on camera to kill the fire in us. Firing us from your networks and record labels. Once admiring us, still we spoke truth instead of fables. So instead of cable, we hit the streets and the net with it. Equity and sweat with it and still get a check with it. Let's get it. We begging for Nathan, got our own label popping. No more picking cotton. We leaving it to rotten. It's that rotten cotton music out the rotten apple. It's that rotten cotton feel. Rotten cotton feel. It's that rotten cotton music out the rotten apple. It's that rotten cotton feel. Rotten cotton feel. It's that rotten cotton music out the rotten apple. It's that rotten cotton feel. Rotten cotton feel. It's that rotten cotton music out the rotten apple. It's that rotten cotton feel. Rotten cotton feel. With 
Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.